This is 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. In 1984, the writer Anthony Burgess selected his 99 favourite novels in English since the outbreak of the Second World War. Never short of an opinion about books, Burgess's list is typically idiosyncratic and invites closer attention, so we've invited some of the leading scholars, critics and writers to tell us more about each of the 99 novels. So read along with us as we explore a reading list created by one of the most original literary voices of the 20th century. In this episode, Andrew Biswell heads back to the era of the bright young things as he examines Evelyn Waugh's Bride's Head Revisited with writer, academic and editor Barbara Cook. Brideshead Revisited, subtitled The Sacred and Profane Memories of Captain Charles Ryder, is perhaps Evelyn Waugh's most famous novel. It follows Ryder as he remembers his life, from his undergraduate years at the University of Oxford, in the Golden Age before the Second World War, to his wartime enlistment in the army. His life is coloured by his obsession with the flights, an aristocratic Catholic family who live in the stately home of Brideshead, At university, Ryder meets Sebastian Flight and is seduced by his life of privilege. He then meets Sebastian's sister, Julia, with whom he forms a romantic relationship. War's novel is his most nostalgic, but still contains his usual humour. In 99 novels, Burgess writes, I've read Brideshead Revisited at least a dozen times and have never failed to be charmed and moved, even to tears. Evelyn Waugh was born in 1903. At the age of 24, he published his first book, a biography of the artist Dante Gabriel Rossetti, and the following year he published his first novel, Decline and Fall. Sixteen more novels followed, including A Handful of Dust, Scoop and Vile Bodies. Waugh travelled extensively throughout his life and wrote about the places he visited, including Europe, Africa, Guyana and Brazil. During the Second World War, he served in the Royal Marines, primarily around the Mediterranean and West Africa. After breaking his leg in a parachuting accident in 1943, he was granted leave from his post, which he used to write Brideshead Revisited, the novel that would bring him fame and success. His last novels were the Sword of Honour trilogy, which were published in 1965. He died in 1966. Barbara Cook is a senior lecturer in English at Loughborough University. She's also co-executive editor of The Complete Works of Evelyn Waugh, published by Oxford University Press, a series which brings together all of Waugh's published and previously unpublished writing, with comprehensive introductions, contextual writing and annotations. She's the author of Evelyn Waugh's Oxford, published by the Bodleian Library, and has recently written the introduction to Penguin's new edition of Decline and Fall. Visit the description of this episode for all the relevant links and a list of all the books mentioned. Here's Andrew Biswell, who spoke to Barbara Cook about Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited in November 2022. 
It's a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Barbara Cook to the 99 Novels podcast. Uh, welcome, Barbara, and thank you for agreeing to talk to us about uh, Evelyn War and about Brideshead Revisited in particular. Um, if we could jump straight in, I'm very keen to find out what was your earliest encounter with Evelyn War's novels and what did you think of them on your first reading? Well, I didn't actually start with the novels at all, as it happens. I started with... Um... Evelyn Waugh's autobiography. He planned to write a full autobiography taking you from cradle to grave. But unfortunately for him, grave happened sooner than he was expecting. So we only have um, autobiography taking us up to his 20s. Um, But that autobiography does cover, obviously, his years in Oxford, which are also part of Bride Said Revisited. And so I read that before I read Brideshead. So I was sort of re- reading about his sort of talking about the parallels between that book and his own life and, and the real people who may or may not have inspired some of the characters before I actually came to Brideshead. Um, so I read that as a student, as a third year undergraduate student, and we were taught biography by um, a chap called Jeremy Treglown, who edited the Times Literary Supplement for most of the 90s. Um, so he you know he's very passionate and I think that's when I became sort of passionate about life writing biography writing sort of fictions inspired by life so um, yeah I think from from then on really I was just sort of fascinated by that sort of interweaving of of fact and fiction and, and life experience and and what that does for a novelist and particularly what that does for Evelyn Moore. Like you, I read A Little Learning quite early on. I think I was mm. still at school. Yeah. And it's a very odd piece of writing, very forbidding one um, uh, in many ways. And I'm not sure I finished it. I think I yeah. moved on to the novels with a kind of disappointment about this this autobiography where he, he bangs on about his religious history. And it, it's a, a very curious piece of writing. I mean, unlike the the, the novels, unlike Brideshead Revisited, which is, is much more, uh, I suppose, warm and engaging um, than mm. some of the the nonfiction, perhaps. Well, yeah, I mean, I I have since edited um, the autobiography for the OUP edition, and it's interesting you found it difficult to read through because he clearly found it difficult to write. He went over that manuscript a lot more um, than for his novels. He, you know, redrafted things over and over again, um, and it was written when he was older, and you know quite aware himself I think that he was didn't have the stamina and the fluency that he had um, when he was writing something like Brideshead so it's interesting that maybe you were picking picking up something of that as, as a reader too. I think it was a bad place to start probably I, I wasn't you know sort of developed enough for it at the time uh, in my middle teens but Burgess I mean turning to the novel in hand uh, Anthony Burgess suggests in his 99 novels he says that Brideshead Revisited is essentially a novel about seduction. I think it's a very interesting uh, provocation on Burdis's part. He says, Charles Ryder is seduced by Sebastian, then by Sebastian's family, ultimately by God. Um, I wonder what you make of all that. You know, is that a fair reading or do you see the novel in, in different terms? Well, I think most readers aren't going to argue with the sort of seduced by Sebastian, seduced by the family. <laughs> that sort of... Um one of the things I think was that was frustrating to war a, a little bit 
was that the relationship with Sebastian seems to be the most kind of vivid, glowing part of the book. And the, the seduction by God seems to be almost sort of, oh, yeah, and then and then that happened. Um, so I think the language is is very luxurious language. It's very kind of Baroque. I mean, he talks about Baroque in the book as well, the narrator. And so there is a sense in which it, as writing, it kind of seduces the senses and it seduces the mind, I think, and it kind of gets you into that sort of rapturous state of, of youth when, when the world is open before you and everything just seems magical. Um, in terms of sort of sexual seduction, oh, well, yes, we've got a problem in that in the book, um, Charles Ryder, the narrator, starts off with this sort of... Um, love affair of a sort with Sebastian Fight, the, the young Catholic aristocrat. And then we are supposed to believe that after he sort of finished what is is sort of framed as a sort of quite youthful, childish infatuation, that he then falls in love with Sebastian's sister, Julia. And that never seems to be quite as exciting as the Sebastian affair and it, there's some sort of awful language about him and Julia when they actually consummate their relationship which is the most sort of unsexy sex scene anywhere ever you know it talks about narrow loins and it is it's, it's not very attractive and um, but then the sort of the idea of faith as a seduction a seduction I don't think is quite the right word it's more of a sort of acceptance it's a different kind of love I mean you could also sort of frame it as the movement between different kinds of love in the novel you know sort of the the young excited kind of erotic sexual love then the kind of romantic love um in the sort of love of partnership through to the sort of um you know theological love for the church so it might be I guess I don't have a massive problem with that that description of the book but I think you're right in saying it is a kind of provocative statement and I'm not sure a Catholic would talk about being seduced by the church um necessarily um more that you're going back to it it is it's sort of inevitable that, that you will go back to the church yes and that seems to be the the, the argument of the um the, the the very long um concluding section the twitch upon the thread that um charles is somehow well charles and lord march mate are being sort of drawn inexorably into the orbit of the church um i i need to qualify what I've already said um, by explaining that uh, Burgess, he was very fond of Brighthead Revisited. It's one of his favourite novels in this selection. He also says, uh, more positively, I suppose, that it's a, it's a readable, um, it's a magical novel, he says, which has often moved him to tears. And this sets me wondering whether the appeal of this book to readers, which is obviously very wide and international, is maybe primarily an emotional one, that it speaks to certain feelings of faith, feelings of nostalgia, rather than, for example, being a novel that we read for the plot or perhaps for more intellectual reasons. I just wonder what you make of all that. Uh, yeah, it's, it's certainly an emotional novel, <laughs> for sure. Yeah, and I think that is sort of part of of the, the faith thing as well you know, this idea of, um, you know, believe as much as you can, uh, you know, sort of have faith and believe as much of it as you can, uh, which was a kind of struggle for war personally, I think, because he was a man, he was very into logic and order and, and rational argument. So for him, the leap of faith is is an, an emotional leap. Um, and it's a kind of 
surrender to not necessarily being able to understand everything but it but it's just sort of surrender that that need in faith so it is it is a very emotional novel and it was written at an extremely emotional time um he was mid world war 2 service he felt that the world of his youth had gone forever um that's quite often sort of described as you know the world of the country house and the aristocracy and like well yes but that's only part of it really it's also about a kind of loss of innocence and sort of um, optimism about the future and kind of uncomplicated relationships with people so it's, it's not just about you know oh these big houses won't be there anymore um so that's the sort of nostalgia part of it um you know oh if only we could go back to that time and it's a very short space of time, in fact, um, you know, sort of in um, the character's late teens, early 20s. Um, so there's a sort of yearning. It's a kind of very yearning type of nostalgia going on there. Um, in terms of plot, yeah, it's not the most, it's not a page turner for that reason. But in terms of how Burgess saw his 99 novels, he, he talks, doesn't he, a lot about books that are driven by character. And characters not always doing what you think they might. And actually, that is what, one reason why he's one of the rationales behind his list. And Brideshead certainly fits that because it's absolutely driven by character. Um, and you're talking about the inevitability of Charles Ryder and Lord Marchmain being sort of pulled back to the faith. But yes, it's like what the characters do or, or quite often choose not to do as well that kind of guides the narrative and guides the course of, of their lives and and war would say they you know their spiritual salvation as well um so it's certainly very character driven and that does cut very deep actually and this idea of um you know emotion and obligation riding out over kind of material or sort of um temporal happiness you know so, so you have julia ultimately rejecting Charles as a husband because she knows it's wrong in the eyes of her faith so there's a lot of kind of personal self-sacrifice going on in it as well so um yeah I do find it a page turner because because you can sort of see what's coming and you're kind of drawn into it you know there's a you talked about the twitch upon the thread but there's also this uh, metaphor used of um, someone who's in a cabin um and the cabin is getting sort of covered in snow and the and the snow is building up so quietly that they don't even notice until the roof falls in. Um, so there's that going on as well. This sort of slow build up of what the characters feel that they will eventually be drawn to do and compelled to do, but they don't notice it happening until it's happened, as it were. So I think for all those reasons, I find it compelling, but certainly not in a kind of you know car car chase um, <laughs> thriller explosion way, but more kind of emotionally explosive. We'll come back to character. There's more to be said on on that, I'm sure. But the the other thing I wanted to raise was um, was preface to the book, written in 1959, towards the end of his life. He suggests, as he's revising his novel, which is written during the Second World War, he says it was the product of an age of rationing and austerity, uh, and he worried and wondered whether he'd overwritten the passages about eating and drinking because those lavish feasts that are described here were no longer available at the time when he was writing it. Um, it's an interesting self-reflection on War's part. I wonder how far that comment helps us to understand his novel. Yeah, it helps you understand the war as well as the novel. He, 
He often spoke about his regret that you couldn't really change a book after it had been published. He he wanted to carry on working on things. You know, he was a perfectionist. He was always sort of working away and working away at them. And, you know, it always frustrated him if he had something published and then later thought, well, I wouldn't put it like that now. Or, you know, sort of that was a mistake or I shouldn't have, you know, or, or makes plans for revisions that sometimes happen in later editions and sometimes don't. So with Brideshead, you have a very interesting case where you in some ways have two versions of the same novel you know there's there's huge cuts made in um the later edition and you know in some of that kind of very um purple prose um that you know that sort of luxurious language is is stripped down um and I think the struggle of that for me is like well yes that might be what War later felt about it and what he felt about it from a different standpoint you know, after the war, you know, civilization as he knew it has not quite crumbled away in exactly the way that he thought it would. But the book, for me, has to be understood as a project um, undertaken in wartime conditions, you know, creating this very rich fantasy world um, of, of what is not possible or wasn't possible at the time. You know, it's got that escapism. I think there's a reason it becomes popular as a book when times are times are straightened you know the um we haven't mentioned the tv series yet the 1980s granada tv series but i think it's something very telling about in times of recession and hardship that kind of very kind of copious excessive language and excessive plot becomes appealing to people so i think if you if you take out that language you're removing something of the context in which it was created and i think that is part of the book's charm and and it's exceptionalism, really. It's very interesting to think of the, potentially readers might be reading two not different novels, but but not identical either. That the these textual changes are clearly significant and substantial. Yeah, they are very much so. And so then you always have the decision of you know do you read the thing that War wanted when he was a bit older and you know with a bit more hindsight or is it you know I don't think there's an answer I don't think what is truer than the other as it were I think they just reflect his attitude to a period of his life from from different moments when he was looking back I mean it is quite interesting that his as a younger man his depictions of Oxford in particular uh nothing like as positive as they are from Bride said when when he was writing as a student and when he'd recently left the university, he was a lot more cutting. There's a lot more of the kind of characters in it that you encounter. Um, you know, his his wife Celia's awful brother, Boy Morcaster, and um, these sort of what they call the hearties, you know, might call jocks or, you know, there's a lot more of the kind of scathing writing going on like say in something like Decline and Fall his first novel where you have a sort of loutish culture you have um, war kind of really sticking the boot into entitlement and sort of oafishness and stupidity so again so you've got him as a young man being quite critical about Oxford then you've got this kind of rhapsodic phase in the middle here (laughs) and then you have him kind of stepping back from that again when life is not quite so dangerous or doesn't feel quite so precarious as well so yeah whenever you meet an author at whatever stage in their life I mean there's going to be differences and I you know I'm a big believer in you know the the sort of not the life determining the work by any degree but the type of work that is produced is certainly affected by 
the author's position at the time to the thing that they're writing about and, and that can change and particularly in the middle of the 20th century when life is changing so fast as well it's very interesting you mentioned oxford because people sometimes talk about brighthead revisited as an oxford novel which of course it is in part but reading it again in preparation for this conversation I'm very struck by how much of the action takes place in other places, not least at Brideshead, the house, another potential sort of seduction going on there. But you've also got Venice. There's you know, quite a lot of the actions happening in London, Paris, uh, I think Marrakesh, an ocean liner in the middle of the Atlantic. Um, and you know, Brideshead, we've mentioned the, the, the place, the house itself. Are we doing a disservice to this novel if we try to locate it within a canon of fiction about Oxford and the university there? Well, I think if we only look at the Oxford sections, which, you know, as you say, make up considerably less than half the book, I suppose you could say that we're we're not looking at the full potential of the book. And especially if you think that war meant it primarily as a sort of journey of a family um, towards faith or a return to faith, then... Oxford is really just happens to be the place where Sebastian and Charles meet. But at the same time, um, Oxford has this pull on Moore's imagination. He writes about the city over and over again, um, particularly particularly the university rather than the city. Um, And, you know, sort of comes up um, in different guises. But not only was he affected by his own experience at Oxford, but he was also affected by the anticipation of it. His father had gone to Oxford. He he decided that he wanted to go. Um, he was obsessed with the book Alice in Wonderland. It was one of his favourite books. And that was that book is itself very much a product of Oxford, particularly in its wonder and its fascination. And there are a lot of sort of references to Alice in Brideshead um all the idea about sort of getting through the grey walls into the secret garden beyond you know this idea that the young undergraduate starts off leading quite a drab sort of life until he finds his way into the kind of metaphorical magical garden I mean I mean that is all kind of Alice in Wonderland inspired and that is itself a product of um the geography in which it was written so I think that Oxford is really important to the production of the book as well as the content of the book um but then Oxford has a monopoly there are so many books that that, you know sort of set there or feature you know feature characters who've been to Oxford you know thinking about Gordy Knight which is another one of my absolute favorite books um you know in the Lord Peter Whimsey series but this one features mostly Harriet Vane in a women's college in Oxford which is absolutely wonderful mid-century book um so I think it's there's a lot of factors that make us think of it as an Oxford book there's a fact that that's a place where young people go and enjoy um a lot of freedom from the social restrictions that were placed upon them outside of Oxford, particularly true in the 1920s, you know, particularly if you, you know, if you were a guy who liked guys, for example, that was okay in Oxford where it wasn't elsewhere. So that there are a lot of reasons why it's um, that location makes things possible that wouldn't be possible elsewhere. But yeah, you're right. Obviously, the majority of the book doesn't happen in Oxford. Uh, but yeah, you never hear it described as a, you know, a Venice novel, but you do hear it described as a country house novel. I mean, it is it is seen as a really important um, milestone in, in novels about the country house too. And, and that's the Brideshead setting, of course. 
Brideshead Castle. Very interesting to think more about the the, the relationship between um, Sebastian and Charles. And uh, for its time, this seems remarkably unworried about same-sex desire, you know, which is clearly, um, you know, there, there are laws against it at the time the novel's written and published. Um, and from what we now know of War's biography, thanks to Martin Stannard and others, it, it's clear that he has a foundational experience of being in love with another man at the time that he's a student. And, and this is, to some extent, reflected in his narrative. It's it, it's a very bold um, presentation. I mean, maybe it's it, it's not primarily as War represents it, a sexual relationship, but it's clear that that things are going on, that Charles is is entirely enchanted by by this this charismatic figure of Sebastian. Yeah, and then you get the problem, as I mentioned, of we're meant to believe that he then falls in love with Julia and he refers to Sebastian as the forerunner. And you're reading the book, you're thinking, hmm, you seem much more, you know, full of delight and joy um, in, in this sort of same-sex relationship. Yeah, so War, he didn't just fall in love with one guy at Oxford he that he was fully in love with at least at least two men and he was part of a social circle where it was completely normal to to have these romantic relationships with men there was a um a sort of drinking club called the hypocrites club which was in St Aldate's in Oxford and it was a sort of drinking den and you know we have sort of eyewitness accounts of you know men you know sort of um being sexually um together in, in that club, like just in a kind of any sort of studenty nightclub you might find. Um, so, yeah, and you're right, it was completely illegal to have a sexual relationship with another man at the time, and that wouldn't change until after war actually died. So he himself was quite open about his sexuality within his friends, within his friendship groups, like more so than you might imagine, and didn't seem to have a particular problem with talking about finding men attractive whilst being in a heterosexual, very successful marriage. So, I mean, there are people that have, over the years, sort of tried to kind of describe his sexuality according to different terms. Um, Tom Dryberg, for example, is a wrote a memoir called Ruling Passions that came out just after um, homosexuality was decriminalised in England. And his account of the same time and the same group of people at Oxford is more explicit. And he sort of talks about war being kind of suppressed in some way that he was a, a, a bisexual man who couldn't live as he chose. And, and, you know, and this caused him all kinds of problems. But I, I'm not quite convinced by that. Um, I think he... I think he was comfortable. I think he was not sort of officially comfortable. You know, he didn't want to have the quote unquote lifestyle that he would have had to have if he openly was in sexual relationships with men. But he never really seemed to have a problem saying he was attracted to other men, for example. Um, so in, in a way, I think the way he saw his sexuality is in some ways more similar to the way we do now. In the, nine, in the sort of 2020s than perhaps we did 20, 30 years ago. We seem to be more in, like sort of willing to kind of think about people's sexuality as being much more of a spectrum, much more fluid than perhaps people needed to see it when, when those rights and those battles were being very fiercely fought towards the end of the 20th century. Yeah, and 
as I say, it's, it's remarkable for a book of, of this time, published 1945, that it's completely true to to the experience and the, the memory of of what's obviously been happening at that time in that place. We should say, um, in case we've not mentioned it already, this is also a comic novel. Um, and I think that too is important to Burdis's apprehension of it. You've got these larger-than-life characters. Charles's father is a great um, oh, source yeah. of comedy. Also, yeah. Mr. Samgrass, the, um, yeah. the, 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 the academic, uh, Anthony Blanche, uh, Rex mm. Mottram, and, and others who you've mentioned already. Um, but a, a broader question arising from that, how important is that kind of, um, I'd call it almost grotesque comedy towards fictional world, do you think? Oh, hugely, yes. <laughs> grotesque is the word. I, I, sort of, I think I've also described it as sort of a burlesquing as well. It comes out of so many different traditions of literature and and, um, and sort of stage writing as well you know there's very much there's quite a lot about this sort of Shakespearean clown sometimes about his characters um, and it's interesting because people quite often separate his books into kind of comedy and not comedy so you've got kind of early comedies in the late 1920s going through the 1930s um, decline and fall and vile bodies for example then you've got sort of later on a book that I've just been working on, The Ordeal of Gilbert Pinfold, which is again considered sort of comedic, um, which is from 1957. And then you've got the more supposedly devotional books. So Brideshead being the most famous, but he also wrote Helena, uh, which is about um, the finder of the true cross on which um, Jesus crucified. It's a historical novel. Um, but but these sort of supposedly kind of devotional or, or you know sort of dramatic or serious books that you're right they absolutely have these sort of amazing comedy set pieces. Charles Ryder's father is just the social comedy. I mean he he does things like um, refuses to uh, sort of be corrected. He'll decide one of Charles's friends is I think American. And, and he's sort of told he's not American, but he kind of refuses to accept the fact. So he's all talking about, you know, oh, of course, you must feel like that being being over here. And uh, of course, it, you know, very, you know, it would all be very different for, for you at home. <laughs> it's like, no, I'm from here. Oh, it, so, um, and, you know, he does it to make his son feel uncomfortable. Um, and I think there is always discomfort in the humour, even in those sort of broadly kind of grotesque books. I think one of my favourite scenes that brings all that together is in um, A Handful of Dust, um, 1934, I think. And that's a very tragic book um, about all sorts of things. Uh, one of the things it's about is the breakdown of a marriage. And there's this whole farcical section where the husband has to do the decent thing and make it possible for his wife to divorce him because she would lose his her character if he divorced her. So he has to go to a hotel with a prostitute um, so that a detective can witness this and, and, and then give evidence for the divorce. But the um, the young sex worker has to bring her child with her because she has no one to look after her child. So this sort of supposed sort of lewd weekend becomes a kind of family trip to the seaside. And, and it's just the comedy is just just on point, but it's making a really serious kind of comment as well about the ridiculousness of the divorce laws. And, and what counts as decent behaviour and, and not. And um, there's a character in that as well, the um, the, the character's brother-in-law, so the brother of this woman who who wants a divorce. And there's just this scene where he's eating in a restaurant and it's a delicious meal. 
and he eats literally everything on his plate, including the bones of the meat that he's been served. And he does it absolutely deadpan. And it's disgusting and weird, but very funny as well. Um, In a very unique way. I haven't found anyone else I know of um, who can write that kind of disgust and horror alongside comedy quite as well as Evelyn Moore. It's interesting, that aspect of uh, social satire, I suppose, and the business of the divorce in The Handful of Dust echoed here. It's very interesting for me to learn that if you're a divorced couple and you were remarrying at the time the book is set, you did it at the Savoy Chapel, back of the, the Savoy Hotel in the 1920s. Um, and the last time I was down in London, I, I, I sought it out because I've been reading about it here. Uh, it's perfectly respectable, you know, by, by all accounts. It m- must be something about the um, the association of the hotel because that's where they went for the, um, the the celebration afterwards. But I think War, as as a great observer of the social scene, he wants to cram all this in and sort of tell you tell you about the texture of the time. Very interesting. Mm-hmm. Always mm-hmm. With, with an eye for the absurd or the, yes. the ironic. Yeah, um, very. And in that sense, this book, though it seems different from the early fiction, is of a piece with those earlier books, which um, the the kind of purely comic novels, as it were, which I, I suppose um, established him in the twenties and thirties. Yeah, he's um, got an excellent ear for dialogue, and you can hear that in Brideshead as well. You mentioned Rex Mottram, who is this very objectionable character who is. Um, highly capitalist kind of very you know money focused individual and he it has sort of fascist leanings so this is so this is in periods of the book that are set in the build-up to world war ii and he's got all his horrible friends over to brighton castle and they're discussing very confidently amongst themselves how there's not going to be a war and just the way that he sort of builds line upon line from horrible man to horrible commentator you know sort of like oh no 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 of course it won't happen and like and then he just leaves the the chapter with you know one of these statements sort of just dangling there with the, sort of the most understated dramatic irony is it's, it's just you know masterful absolutely masterful yeah i'm looking at my notes um when rex first comes into view um i've written he is flashy and thick he's other things as well it's slimy. You, you feel like you need a shower after sort of reading the, the scenes you're involved in um, yeah. and that, that's uh, another i suppose uh, aspect of, of war really sort of get, going to town with the grotesque well and then the insincere it's the insincerity of the i mean i think because one of the sort of characters who comes out of the whole novel best is cordelia um the very deliberately named youngest sister uh, of sebastian flight who is just always totally direct and she has great fun with Rex <laughs> um, because he is willing to convert to Catholicism to marry Julia Flight. Um, this is before they realise, as you've just been talking, that he's been married before and he is, with his, you know, obtuseness, doesn't realise that he has been married in the eyes of the church and therefore cannot be married again unless his first wife dies. Um, but so, so he's taking um, instruction for Catholicism and Cordelia just gives him all this nonsense that's just not canon and and he's just like really do, do you really do that and and he's very um, and the priests get very frustrated with him because he will just do whatever he's told he'll believe whatever he's told but without it's the completely other end of the scale to war because 
you know, the priest would be like, don't you have a problem with like reconciling this or this? And she's like, no, no father, as long as you tell me it's true, that's good enough for me. And because it just doesn't go deep. You know, it's it's just all mechanical for him. It's it's transactional. And and that is that is unforgivable <laughs> in War's universe. You mentioned earlier that uh, this novel, Brideshead Revisited, has been adapted, first of all, as the, the television series, the John Mortimer series um, in 1981. And it's also been remade as a feature film since then with uh, Ben Wishaw, um, etc. Uh, and it, funnily enough, when it was on the TV in the 80s, Burgess was called in as some sort of expert in, in Catholic writing to review it. He, he quite liked the, 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 the TV adaptation. Uh, and wrote very admiringly. He said it was faithful to the book, um, though he, he got his doubts about the, the what he calls the sort of outrageous, preposterous plot. Um, I, I wonder if you've any thoughts about either the TV series or or the film that comes later, uh, and how they sort of either leave out or sort of emphasise particular aspects of the novel itself. Yes. So the TV series is pretty much verbatim. In the book, I think the things the characters say are, are hardly changed at all, if at all, um, and that's one of the reasons why it's, it's a very long series, um, particularly for the time. Um, you know, an absolute huge budget went into it, and it's it is beloved, isn't it? You know, it's sort of um, you know it's a canonical, um, and you know they they filmed it at uh, Castle Howard, so for lots of people, Castle Howard is Brideshead Castle, and. Yeah, he certainly took some features of of that building. Um, but Brideshead is is a composite. You know, there are other buildings. Um, Paula Byrne has written about Madrasfield Court, for example, and its connection to Brideshead Castle. But because of that TV series, um, yeah, that that sort of cemented the sort of the the um the glass dome on the top of Castle Howard is sort of iconic and become as much part of the narrative as anything else. Um, so yeah, it was a labour of love and rightly acclaimed. Um, they say the preposterous plot, like you say, I mean, well, it's the same plot as the book and I'm not sure which bit he found particularly preposterous, maybe the deathbed conversion, but I mean, War did actually witness that happening, um, to somebody he knew. So I don't, (laughs) I mean, nothing is more ridiculous than real life perhaps. Um, but, um, yeah, the later film, oh, oh dear, um, I believe there are plans to kind of redo it as a, a TV series again. Um, I'm not sure how far they've got, but I'm quite looking forward to seeing what's done with that. Because, yes, I suppose there are things you can emphasise now, but we were just talking about the kind of sexuality. And actually, I mean, there is a reason why it's not explicit in the book, because I think it is important for readers to be able to kind of fill that space of ambiguity themselves and in the film I can totally see why they decided to have Sebastian and Charles having an openly sexual relationship in the film they have them swimming naked in the fountain I think and and all sorts um and yes okay I can I I I think it's well-intentioned but I think it (laughs) to be honest loses some of the subtlety of the book and it does chop about with the plot a lot as well so I I don't think the the Ben Wisher film amazing as Ben Wisher is love him um I I think it got quite mixed reviews and I I, I think that's justified <laughs> but I, I would like to see someone um do it again in now I think long enough has passed since the Granada TV to uh, to do 
to give a different perspective um, on what is at heart the same story. I think it's time. There's yeah, there's been some interesting work, kind of creative work, sort of taking Brideshead as inspiration as well, which is um, you know it's it's good. I think it's a bit of an evergreen text. I think there's always more to discover in it and more to show. And just as War himself went back to it and wanted to to sort of rework it, I suppose that's reflected in this process of, of adaptation that maybe each generation is kind of um, with the visual adaptations creating its own version of of his uh, rightly famous novel. Yeah, well, Bryony Lavery um, recently did a stage production of Brideshead as, as well. She's, um, you know, very, very talented practitioner who was behind Warhorse as well. Um, I spoke to her about, you know, her... She just constantly reread the book, you know, cover, cover the book in notes. And I think if that's if that's where you start from, I think whatever you end up with is gonna be is gonna be worth worth looking at. I think one of the mistakes of the film is I think the director is on record as saying he thought that Catholicism was the enemy in the story. And I, well, if you go into it with that view, then the film that you make won't be Brideshead. It it could be something very interesting and very good, but as we've just been talking about, the whole driving force of the narrative is the the inevitability of surrendering one's, um, you know, worldly interest to the good of the church. And if you don't see that, ah, uh, it's going to be difficult to make good art. <laughs> I don't know. That's just my opinion. I'm very happy to be proved wrong. Very happy. Maybe stepping sideways or slightly backwards from the novel uh i know that you've been working uh on on a range of um different books by evelyn moore as part of the um the the collected works project and i wanted to ask what have been the most surprising or the most interesting things you've found out about evelyn moore through your involvement in that project yeah um the personal letters the personal writings are a revelation i think prior to our project only about 15 percent of them had been published um and obviously if you've got we've got sort of something like ten thousand items um so publishing them all is a massive undertaking so obviously you know there's it's perfectly reasonable to do an edited collection um, and show some of the highlights and but i think you've always got a problem with how can you be truly representative of a person if you've only got 15 percent of the material available and when you look at his writing in the round um his extraordinary kindness comes through yes he had an awful temper he was mercurial and predictable um you know some of the things we're talking about in the sort of played for laughs in the books are things that he would you know perhaps enact in his own life to less amusing effect but he would he gave a lot of his money away he supported a lot of charitable causes but also financially supported a lot of his friends who were on, you know, running into hard times. So, um, you know, he's sort of propping people up, sending them either money or or just little gifts and things quite often um, to keep them going. He writes and there's a sort of, oh, he hated his children, you know, he was a bad father, but he was a great letter writer to his children. He gave them some excellent advice in his letters. There's some, a great letter he writes to his, um, one of his elder daughters, Margaret, and he's talking about, oh, I wish you would rest. I don't mean just sitting doing nothing. I mean doing whatever it is you have to do in a kind of spirit of calmness. And basically he's talking about mindfulness 
Right. And he's like, that is real rest. And, you know, there's there's a lot of wisdom there. And he was very insecure as well. So he was kind of very, you know, kind of he sort of kept people at arm's length. But, you know, if someone said he was boring or kind of, you know, it really cut deep and it made him not want to go out, you know, so that kind of vulnerability that you see in the letters as well, you know, he doesn't strike one as a very vulnerable character in the front he put on for the world. But but he was, he was incredibly complicated. So, you know, I like complicated characters. I, I like working on people who you would not necessarily sure you'd want to meet in real life, but you know, maybe you would and you'd have a great time. But, you know, just to have that kind of complexity and depth, um, I think is something that you see when you have the, the privilege of looking at a full run of very well preserved materials. Thank you. And of course, we'll look forward to your own edition of The Ordeal of Gilbert Pinfold to, to find out more about those complexities, I'm sure. Well, I hope so. Now, yeah. Indeed. Burgess writes in the novel now that he says War's best novel is not Brideshead Revisited, but A Handful of Dust. And um, I wonder where you think this, this novel, Brideshead, stands in relation to his other work, especially the fiction. It's funny, you know, when people like a band and quite often they say, oh, I only like their early material. I I kind of feel that that's a bit like, you know, when saying, oh, Handful of Dust is a personal novel. It's like, if, if you know, if you know War a bit, you say your favourite novel's Bride said, but if you really know War, you say it's a Handful of Dust. And it is a masterpiece. It's an incredible novel. Um, Bride said, it caught the zeitgeist, basically. It caught, we talked about it being an emotional book. Um, and we talk about it, whatever people find in it is something that people really needed at the time. And that isn't necessarily always down to sheer literary prowess, or, you know, or technique, or it's not necessarily something that can be planned. It's something that kind of happens, um, you know, and it's to do with those sort of unique um, conditions in which it was produced. So I think that's what makes it special. And it opened up a huge readership for even more in the United States. He wasn't particularly well known in the United States before Brideshead. But, you know, the uh, um, American Catholic readership really went for it. And it was extensively reviewed um, in, in, in Catholic newspapers um, and in periodicals in, in the States. So I think it's the book of wars that belongs most to the world. And I think that's why people love it. And I do find it endlessly fascinating. Um, so, uh, I mean, you, you very kindly haven't asked me what you think his best book is. <laughs> so I'm not going to make, make um, you know, a rod for my own book by, by trying to answer the question. But um, I think I like caustic war. I like war who kind of has an eye on the world and, and sees right through you. And I think a handful of dust certainly does does that. Um, it's it's a bleaker book than Bride said, so it's a bit less compromising, I suppose. And so, so so I like it. But it's like you know, do you do you like a sweet rosé or a dry rosé? Well, I like my rosé, you know, bone dry. So I like handful of dust. <laughs> yeah, Bride said's more of your Ziffandel, maybe. <laughs> That's a very good answer. Thank you. Um, and there's one question we ask everyone who comes on the 99 Novels podcast, which is uh, which novel you would like to add to Burdis's list of 99? 
and why you would like that book to be uh, you know sort of added yeah I've been pondering this one a lot and um, I thought well first of all do I, do I stay with Burgess's time period so do I stay between 39 and is it 1984 three, 84, right, 83? Yeah. so there are a few contenders I'm a, I'm sorry that there's no Agatha Christie on his list because for similar reasons for Brideshead I think in terms of zeitgeist and really capturing popular imagination and just being brilliant I think I would like to see Crooked House on there I think um Dodie Smith's I Capture the Castle is another one that I think really deserves a place, a very interesting kind of history. But I think what I'm plumping for in the end is a Kenyan novel called A Grain of Wheat. And it was written by somebody called Ngugi Watiango, who studied in the UK, um, but but wrote about Kenya. And it's um, it's set on the day of Kenyan independence. But it tells quite a lot of the story and flashback to the time of um, national emergency in Kenya and various uprisings. And it's it's a story of a village, but every character in it has sort of their own motivations, um, their own relationship to the changing regime. And it does also have a cracking plot. You know, it has a kind of mystery element to the plot of, you know, who has betrayed who and, you know, who really loves who. And, you know, so so it's kind of, it's got a lot of that intrigue, but it's um, it's got a really it's very important book politically, and it's a real landmark text in sort of English language writing in Africa. So for that reason, I think that one just pips um, Agatha Christie and Dodie Smith. Though maybe if it was one hundred and two, I'd have them as well. I think we'll settle for the one hundred and two. That's extremely generous of you. Um, oh, great. Uh, th- Thank you very much um, for uh, guiding us through Brighthead Revisited uh, and for for recommending um, these additional novels as well. Um, And thank you for coming on the, the podcast, Barbara. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. You've been listening to 99 Novels, a podcast by the International Anthony Burgess Foundation. Evelyn Wars Oxford by Barbara Cook is out now and available from all good bookshops. You can find more information about the complete works of Evelyn War at Oxford University Press's website or by clicking the link in the description of this episode. For more information about Anthony Burgess and to find out how you can support the work of the Burgess Foundation, visit anthonyburgess.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, Why not leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts?